What you have to see is the electric cars, they have a very interesting acceleration because you don't have to shift. They go immediately, the power comes up. Zip. That's Wim Alwater. He's an inventor and entrepreneur who may just change the way you think about electric vehicles. Once you have been driving an electric car, you don't want to go back to a combustion engine. You don't want to do it. The beauty about if you go downhill and you're producing electricity, it's, it's a good feeling. In an age where gas-powered vehicles account for nearly half of greenhouse gas emissions within the transportation sector, EVs are seen as a way to help slow global warming. And while climate change is a complex problem that won't be solved by any one policy or technology, electric cars seem to be doing their part. In the last decade, the EV industry grew by leaps and bounds. In 2021 alone, more than 6 million EVs were sold worldwide. That's twice as many as 2020. Tesla has arguably done more for the EV industry than any other company out there. But Wim thinks that the next big thing for EVs is making them smaller. He's created a whole new kind of EV, a miniature electric bubble car named the Microlino. This car has a lot of emotion to people that are not uh, car addicts. We have some, uh, some feedback also from younger generations saying, well, finally, a new concept. When it comes to electric cars, this less is more philosophy that Wim is using isn't just environmentally friendly. It's stylistically unique and more functional for navigating the streets of those dense European city centers. But the common link between the Microlino, Tesla, and the new generation of EVs on the market today is that they owe a debt to the electric vehicle pioneers who came before them. And there are few pioneers as accomplished as Wally Rappel. In the 1990s, Wally was a part of the team behind General Motors' groundbreaking electric car, the EV1. It had the design, it had the buzz. What Wally's EV1 lacked was the right timing. He was too early, and that's the time to market. It's, in, it's incredible now, the batteries are cheaper. You have now supports for normal cars, electric, you have charging stations. If you were too early, that's a really a pity, but, but now the time is, uh, is right. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from SETA, a show about the tech underdogs no one realized would shape the future. SetApp's versatile app subscription service empowers you to step into a new era of productivity. Well, I was at the Smithsonian in connection with the BBC. And the Smithsonian EV1 was right behind me as I was being interviewed. That's Wally Rappel, the electric vehicle pioneer who helped build the prototype for GM's EV1. That EV1 looked like it had come off the production line one or two hours prior. There wasn't a speck of dust on the car. It was just absolutely in mint condition. It was nice to look at it and bring back memories. I had driven it many times. The EV1 was the world's first commercially available electric vehicle of the modern era. When it was released in 1996, it developed a cult following. But what most of its devotees didn't know was the remarkable story behind some of the EV1's key technology. Rewind to Southern California in the mid-1960s when Wally was an undergrad. He'll never forget that one particular day when he was gazing out his classroom window. 
I was in a uh, history class at Caltech. It was a very smoggy day. And um, for most days, you could not see the mountains. Uh, and you had a burning sense in your eyes. That's what got me started in thinking about what can I do, what can Caltech do in dealing with the problem of smog. The world was just starting to understand the correlation between global warming, the burning of fossil fuels, and the extent that gas-powered cars contribute to the problem. Wally resolved that a new type of car could help slow this new trend. I decided to uh, convert a vehicle to electric drive and to use it, to, you know, kind of walk the talk. <laughs> I looked at different possibilities and I came up with the idea of a VW bus, which I converted to electric drive during my junior year. Wally set about converting a 1959 VW microbus, replacing its internal combustion system with electric drive, powered by golf cart batteries. 1,900 pounds of them. Soon, his newly transformed EV could be seen humming around campus and Hollywood. With a range of 50 to 60 miles and a top speed of 57 miles per hour, Wally wanted his new invention to get the public excited about electric vehicles. So I had the, the crazy idea of challenging MIT to a cross-country electric car race. And I, I'm, I heard through the grapevine that what happened is the MIT dean got this letter and said, that's the dumbest idea I've ever heard of. But some students at, at MIT thought, well, if the dean thinks it's a dumb idea, maybe it really is cool. <laughs> and with that, it was on. MIT built their electric car, rules for the race were drafted, and judges were selected. On August 26th, 1968, at precisely the same moment, they were off. Wally's Caltech car headed east. The MIT car headed west. First car to reach the other's campus was the winner. It was dubbed the Great Electric Car Race. There was um, camera people from all three networks, NBC, ABC, CBS. And they were all expecting to hear the sound of an engine start, at least subconsciously. And they heard this countdown. The countdown was given like, you know, NASA would do. And at, at T-minus zero, I accelerated. And these cameramen jumped out of the way. They were shocked that the car, you know, took off without a, any pre-warning sound. The race began as smooth as silk for Wally and the Caltech team. With no charging stations like we have today, the team had arranged to have electric companies open up their utility covers and let them connect directly to live lines. Then, just outside of Seligman, Arizona, about 400 miles into their trip, something went wrong. So I was behind the wheel. There was a, a gentle downgrade. A few seconds after I had downshifted, the, there was a loud thud and the car decelerated very rapidly as if I jammed on the brakes. What happened is that the motor blew up because of the speed. So I told the team, I said, look, you know, I think we're going to have to forfeit this. We're, we're not going to be able to continue on. One of the follow car uh, members said to me, he said, Wally, we're going to go to MIT, no matter what. He said, either we're going to drive this car or we're going to push it. They made some calls and made arrangements to fly a new motor out to Wally and his team. They were out of the race for 23 hours, but they still had a chance. 
news reports were coming in over the radio that MIT was also having engine issues. Back on the road, Wally's team slept in their car, taking turns driving, stopping only to charge the vehicle. The hours turned into days, and on September 4th, at about 7.30 in the morning, Wally's VW bus rolled onto the MIT campus and crossed the finish line. They had traveled over 3,000 miles in roughly nine days. So it ended up, we, we won the race by half an hour, and that was a good feeling, but it was a better feeling just to have crossed the country. The great electric car race of 1968 was just the beginning of Wally's love affair with electric cars. He continued working on EV technology for the next two decades with the Jet Propulsion Lab and the firm Aerovironment. Then in 1990, California passed its Zero Emissions Vehicle Mandate, or ZEV Mandate, which required 10% of all American-built cars to be emission-free by 2003. If the big auto manufacturers wanted to continue to market their cars in California, they needed to come up with an electric car concept. So General Motors asked Wally and his team to build a prototype. I had a laboratory where I was doing this work of AC drive, designing equipment and then running tests and so on. And when we went through the math the final time, the conclusions were even with a lead acid battery and the technology we had at the time, we could make an electric vehicle. After Wally proved it could be done, he handed it off to his colleague to help him get it done. The propulsion was done entirely by Alan Cocconi in the Aerovironment. I was working as a consultant on that. And Alan designed the stuff and built it hands-on, single-handedly. They named the prototype The Impact. The name Impact, of course, was humorous because some people thought, now, that's... Perhaps the worst name for an automobile (laughs) is impact. (laughs) I think Johnny Carson made some fun of it on on TV uh, about the GM impact. Yeah. (laughs) And he said, well, maybe Ford's going to come along with something called the whiplash. (laughs) Regardless of the razzing they got for the name, the car itself was no joke. Powered by 32 rechargeable batteries, the impact could reach an impressive top speed of 183 miles per hour. Finally, the big day came when Wally got to test drive the impact on the drag track with Alan Kikoni. So you get a pass going into this place that normally would have crowds of people. So when I went there, Alan was there. The uh, impact was a two-seater. So he said, okay, you get behind the wheel. And so I did a maximum acceleration. And for me, it was sensory overload because I wanted to keep track of voltage and current and speed and RPM and stuff like that. And stuff is flashing on a computer screen. And I'm trying to also experience this. Driving the uh, impact for the first time was, was one of those very special moments where things that you had been thinking about, things that you had done on paper, and now seeing it all come to life and work. And this is what makes engineering a, um, an exciting thing. In 1996, the impact, now renamed the EV1, was released to the world. It was a two-seater with an aerodynamic teardrop-shaped body. The interior control console was designed to give the driver the feeling that they were commanding the cockpit of an aircraft. Its battery provided a range of 60 to 80 miles, and the acceleration was impressive. 
I took the lead on on some things with the motor design. So there is a, a sound of from the motor. It's a, somewhat the sound of a jet turbine starting, and there's an excitement that creates. And we could do zero to sixty in eight seconds. That was like going to the moon. That made it exciting. You know, this is not just a vehicle that will will get from point A to B, but it'll be fun to drive. The people who test drove the vehicle, even people who were naysayers of electric vehicles, became enthusiasts for electric vehicles. Big time Hollywood stars, from actor Sylvester Stallone to comedian Jay Leno, were high profile advocates. Motor Trend magazine said that the EV1 was the world's only electric vehicle that drives like a real car. An automobile magazine applauded its smooth delivery of power. But GM responded to the fanfare with muted enthusiasm. They claimed, in spite of the passionate and loyal following, there wasn't sufficient demand. But many critics weren't buying it. After all, GM only developed the EV1 to appease emissions regulators. In fact, GM joined forces with other automakers to fight those regulations in court. Many viewed this as an act of self-sabotage. This pressure resulted in the relaxation of emissions requirements, and GM eventually abandoned the EV1 altogether. Whether there wasn't really sufficient demand or GM deliberately undermined the project, one thing is obvious. Developing and launching EV technology wasn't cheap. But in spite of that, Wally insists GM's biggest mistake is that they didn't appreciate how good their electric vehicle could be. The statement that GM makes that, look, we were losing money on this, I, I can understand that and I sympathize with that. But what I fault them for is not understanding technology well enough, not having technological or corporate vision to the point that they could say, yes, we're losing money on it now, but we're going to put together the world's best engineering team to develop the next generation of electric vehicle technology. They did not do that. They saw the EV1 as it was at that point in history, but they didn't appreciate how good it could get. They would be way ahead now. They wouldn't have been playing catch up to Tesla. Tesla would have been uh, thinking, do we have a chance to compete with GM? GM only produced about 1,100 EV1s, none of which they sold outright to the few drivers who were lucky enough to get their hands on one. In 2003, when the final EV1 leases expired, GM sent almost every car to the crusher. Among the faithful, it was an emotional loss. It was the dis attempted destruction of an idea. Uh, it was, you know, my life stream in terms of, of the work that I was doing. But the, probably the most painful part, uh, and that remains to this day, is that we were destroying something that we needed to survive on this planet. There were protests and backlash. There was even a mock funeral for the car held at a cemetery in Hollywood. And Wally was among those who stood up to give a eulogy. I was one of the speakers there, and I, uh, <laughs> I, I couldn't help but I spoke about the bright future of electric vehicles. The good news, of course, is that the electric car is not dead. The electric car of the time was eliminated. But as I said when, when I was there, you cannot kill a good idea, so it will, will live on. By the time Wally was eulogizing the EV1, he was already taking the future of electric vehicles into his own hands. In 1992, after delivering the impact to GM, 
Wally co-founded a company called AC Propulsion. Here, he helped build an electric sports car named the T-Zero. The T-Zero would never go into production, but it did inspire three men who would eventually bring EV technology to the masses. Their names were Mark Tarpening, Martin Eberhard, and Elon Musk, also known as the co-founders of Tesla. In 2006, Wally joined the Tesla team and helped incorporate the T-Zero technology into their very first electric car. The electric torch had been passed from Caltech's VW Microbus to GM's EV1 to Tesla, with Wally Rappel as the constant, all of which paved the way for a whole new generation of EVs. If you have Tesla, it's a love brand. Now, why are these love brands? These are love brands because they're bringing out a certain emotion. And with the Microlino, we definitely bring out the emotion. If you wonder what the next generation of EVs might look like, ask Wim Alboder. Wim is a Swiss entrepreneur who believes less is more when it comes to electric vehicles. His new EV, the Microlino, embodies that philosophy and is poised to revolutionize urban mobility. Like the EV1, the Microlino is also a sporty two-seater, but Wim's EV has a significantly different look. Passengers enter this microcar through a single front door that doubles as the face of the vehicle. This design was inspired by the popular Italian-made bubble cars that cruised around Europe back in the 1950s. It's an unconventional design by today's standards, and that's exactly why it's getting people's attention. It's a lesson Wim's wife learned the first time he took her for a test drive. So I drive with her to Zurich, and and uh, you see these people waving at me, and they were also uh, cute girls waving at me in my car, and uh, you know, she's looking at me and said, you know, what, uh, what's going on here? You know, you know all them. I said, no, 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 it's the car, it's the car. The, the car has something about it. Well, I think she didn't believe me. I said, you know, let's do this. I get out of the car. You make a spin. I wait here for you, okay? She went for a spin and she came back and said, unbelievable, unbelievable. Then we have a park there and immediately you have 10 people standing to the car. What is this? Wim's enterprise began with a simple question. How much car do you really need for your daily commute? His vehicles are based on his principle of micromobility a concept he first came up with in Zurich back in the 1990s. First of all, you have to imagine in uh, 26 years ago, the restaurants, the hot kitchen actually closed at nine o'clock this very early. So in order to get some hot food, there was only the sausage place available. And they were um, grilling their sausages all night long until two o'clock in the morning. The trouble was, these sausage places were just far enough away to feel out of reach. So um, this was like a micro distance, a distance that is too far to walk, but it is uh, too short to take the bicycle out of the cellar. So that's how I came up with uh, with a special device, um, very small, it's like a scooter with two wheels, one in the front, one in the back, and uh, a very short um, uh, base to stand on, and it was fast, it was easy. So. That's how I came up with a collapsible scooter. Wim was excited by his new invention, but when he showed his scooter to friends, they gave it lukewarm reviews. Wim was ready to abandon the project. And then something happened. 
it was in my garage. You know, there's like an open garage where a lot of people have access to it. And I was just I was just parking it there because after my disappointment with my friends, they told me, come on, don't do it. And then the kids really took it out and they were driving it and they kind of brought it back to life. And and, and then, you know, my wife said, you know, I'm watching these kids, you know, it's um, that is something about it. That was enough to inspire Wim to get his scooter into production. Wim decided to roll the dice and start his own company. He named it Micromobility Systems. It's a decision that would change his life forever. There's a good chance you've seen or even rode on one of Wim's scooters. In the U.S., they're called Razor. And in the early 2000s, they sold millions worldwide. A key to Wim's growing success is the idea behind his vehicles. At the heart of it, even if they're fun, they're a form of transport. Which got Wim thinking about the daily commute. He was surprised to discover, on average, cars in Europe are occupied by only 1.2 people, traveling just 30 kilometers, or about 18 miles per trip. And many of these trips are made in large SUVs. That means people are making lots of short trips in big and nearly empty, energy-inefficient cars. Wim realized this obviously isn't a recipe for tackling climate change. It's not that to move from a big gas car to a big electric car. It's not that. It's we have to move to smaller cars, a lot more smaller cars. And light electric vehicles are definitely going to be the solution. So our main, main word is really downsize. If you want to save our planet, we must downsize. And that's what inspired him to create the Microlino. It's smaller than a car, but of course, it's much larger than a scooter. It does 0 to 50 in 5 seconds and can travel up to 140 miles on a single charge. You can charge it using a regular household outlet. And because it's so small and lightweight, it has 50% fewer parts than standard cars. It also uses 65% less energy than other EVs. On top of that, you have some advantage with the front door. That means you can cross park, and it means you always find a parking space, and you can easily exit to the sidewalk. And because you have no side doors, you can park one Microlino next to each other. That means you can park three cars on one parking lot. In 2016, the Microlino very nearly missed its own unveiling. The prototype had arrived just in time for a show in Nuremberg. Everything was falling into place. Then, Wim got a phone call. And then a phone call came. Oh, something happened, something really stupid. And he sent me a picture. And this was this wooden box. This was completely damaged on one side. And then he slowly took the the, the wooden uh, part off from that box and slowly you could see what was inside. Beautiful our car. But it was completely damaged on one side. And this was a moment that you ask yourself, have I earned this? You know, why? Why me? Why like this? I mean, how can this happen? With no time for repairs before the show, Wim's wife had to brainstorm. Instead of putting the car on a rotating turntable, 
they put the damaged side against the wall. On the car, they left a note titled Shit Happens with the story of how it fell off a forklift during shipping. It was just the spin that they needed. The funny thing is, this story was for the for the journalist was a lot more interesting than anything else. So we got a huge coverage on the media because of that story. The Microlinos forklift mishap made a great story and attracted all kinds of press attention. A lesson that wasn't lost on another EV entrepreneur. And Elon Musk, when he presented the Cybertruck, uh, he took this ball into the window to explain how strong it is. And he actually broke. That's funny. That was after us, by the way. That was after us. So I think Elon Musk learned something from us to to make shit happen so that the the journalists are going to write about it. (laughs) For Wim, the show in Nuremberg and the shows that followed helped him get the attention of some big players in the automotive industry. Yeah, I mean, I tell you, for a small company to jump into this shark pool, it's quite challenging. But um, it was a big success for us uh, quickly because, I mean, the CEO of uh, Mercedes and of Volkswagen shake my hands. I mean, they have realized this is not a joke anymore. This is really something that has to come. Small electric cars. The first of his Italian-made microlinos are scheduled to hit the road in 2022. Wim's microlino is very much an extension of the micromobility devices he created in the 90s. In it, he sees potential benefits that much larger EVs simply can't deliver, like lower CO2 output in production, less energy consumption during use, and a range and size that make it a better fit for the average urban commute. It's turning a lot of heads, including Wally Rappel's. You can see many advantages. The actual space that it takes on the road will be less. The energy per passenger, if it's only one or two passengers, will be less. The technology is probably not so much the issue as the uh, proper marketing and uh, making something that ha- that looks good and has a little bit of character that people will come to love like they love the EV1. Technology and marketing are certainly important, but so is electric vehicle infrastructure, something that was less developed when the EV1 was released in the 90s. I mean, now we have special parking spots for electric cars. We have charging stations. Uh, We even say recycling of car batteries now is, from my understanding, is that 95% can be recycled. It may have taken five decades, but Wally can finally see his original vision taking shape. The vision I have uh, is that batteries will improve to the point that we'll be able to charge in six minutes for 400 miles of driving and where the battery will last 30 years. And I can see 10 years from now, electric cars costing less than the the gasoline counterpart cars. So reduce cost and improve charging are the, uh, the cornerstones for the future electric vehicle that will become mainstream. Like that electric VW microbus that rolled out of Caltech in 1968, the EV's journey to the mainstream hasn't been smooth or even direct. But today, with new players, new ideas, and new creative concepts, the road ahead is wide open. I'm Julia Furlan, and this is Ahead of Its Time, an original podcast from Setup. Working on your next big thing? 
SetApp's productivity toolkit will help you stay focused and get stuff done. Head over to setapp.com to see if SetApp can help you bring your ideas to life.